0: Well, today's sermon is the fourth and final sermon in our Advent series this season, the the series we've titled, Awaiting the Promise. And we've been looking at at various promises found throughout Scripture about the first and second comings of our Lord. And today we're going to talk about the promised new world. We'll be looking at what Revelation 21 and 22 have to say about the new heaven and the new earth. And so you, you can turn there now in your Bibles, or if you want to use the church Bible, that's page 1,041. Um, It should be nearly the last page in your Bible. Now, if you were to go around and ask evangelical Christians what what the Christian's ultimate hope is, most would answer something like going to heaven when you die. And if you followed up that question with, well, what is heaven like? What do we, what do we know about it? Uh, almost certainly you would get a description of some kind of shadowy, um, ethereal place up in the clouds where ghost-like human beings kind of float around, like, like Matt said in his prayer, playing uh, golden harps, you know, a very otherworldly place, a very otherworldly existence, Uh, If you saw the Pixar movie Soul last year, um, it kind of represents this idea in in the film. um, After death, humans make this journey to the great beyond and um, where they exist as souls. And the souls there in the film are portrayed as these uh, translucent blue liquidy blob things. And, And they just kind of exist there in this strange place. Now, obviously, most Christians don't take uh, Pixar's interpretation of the afterlife as gospel truth, but, but the idea that we will spend eternity in some kind of disembi- as disembodied spirits in some kind of immaterial place is the hope that, that most Christians have embraced. And, and let me just say right here at the outset of the sermon today that that hope has almost nothing to do with the bible has almost nothing to do with the gospel of jesus christ and yes it's true when when a when a christian dies the body and the soul are, are separated and the body's laid in the grave awaiting resurrection the soul is with Christ awaiting bodily resurrection. And Paul says in Philippians 1 that, that that is great gain for us. It's the end of our life of sin and toil here in this world, but it's not our ultimate hope. You know, theologians call that time between death and resurrection the intermediate state. It's temporary, it's not our ultimate destination. See, our ultimate hope as Christians is is to dwell with the triune God and all the redeemed in resurrected bodies in a physical earth. In the new heavens and the new earth that that John describes for us here in Revelation 21 and 22. You see, our hope is God's promise of a new world. A world free from sin and death. A world drenched in life. A world... Marked by righteousness and justice and peace. And that's what these final chapters of our Bible, not just the final chapters of Revelation, but the final chapters in Holy Scripture are all about this hope of a new world. And so before I... Um, begin to, to read the passage, let me just set the context. In the chapters leading up to Revelation 21, John describes Christ's final victory over the powers of evil and death. He comes in, in great power and great glory as the victorious Lord. All of his enemies are overthrown, cast into the lake of fire, never to cause, uh, wreak havoc again. And then chapter 21 opens with, Then I saw... And so here is John's vision of the fruit of Christ's victory at the end of history. Here's the consummation of Christ's redeeming work in the world. And it's a new heavens and a new earth and a redeemed humanity. So let me read for us. We're gonna, I'm going to read Revelation 21, 1 through 22, 5. It's a very lengthy passage, so, so stay with me here. Uh, But beginning in verse 1 of chapter 21, we read, Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne, saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. And he measured the city with his rod, 12,000 stadia. Its length and width and height are equal. He also measured its wall, 144 cubits by human measurement, which is also an angel's measurement. The wall was built of jasper, while the city was pure gold like clear glass. The foundations of the wall of the city were adorned with every kind of jewel. The first was jasper, the second sapphire, the third agate, the fourth emerald, the fifth, onyx, the sixth, carnelian, the seventh, chrysolite, the eighth, beryl, the ninth, topaz, the tenth, chrysoprase, the eleventh, jacinth, the twelfth, amethyst. And the twelve gates were twelve pearls, each of the gates made of a single pearl, and the street of the city was pure gold like transparent glass. And I saw no temple in the city, for its temple is the Lord God, the Almighty, and the Lamb. and His name will be on their foreheads, and night will be no more. They will need no light or lamp or sun, for the Lord God will be their light, and they will reign forever and ever. This is God's Word. Let me pray for us. Our God and Father, as we come to a passage like this that can be a bit overwhelming and confusing, and yet it is so glorious and full of Solid hope, we pray that you would give us eyes to see wonderful things in your word. Would you cause our hope to be rooted firmly in this promise of a new world that you have given to us in your son, Jesus Christ. It's in his name we pray. Amen. Well, what is this new world that God has promised to us? We're going to look at three pictures that John... Paints here for us. The, this promised new world is number one, a new creation, number two, a new city, and number three, a new garden. So new creation, new city, new garden. first let's let's consider that this promised new world is a new creation. And we see this in the in the opening of chapter twenty one, really the first eight verses there. The, the first thing that John tells us here is that eternity is earthy. Eternity is earthy. Uh, Notice what he says, verse 1, Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. He sees the new Jerusalem coming down from heaven to earth. Heaven and earth finally reunited as God had always intended. And so contrary to what what many of us have come to believe, the the future, the, the eternity is physical. It's earthy, it's tangible, it's a world that can be seen and and touched and tasted. We ourselves will be physical people, embodied people, resurrected people, um, living, breathing, walking, talking human beings in a new earth. And the picture here that John gives us is not... Uh, souls migrating up to heaven, but rather heaven coming down to earth. And in verse 3, we read this this amazing promise that really summarizes so much of, of the biblical story that the dwelling place of God, God's home, comes down and is now with His people on earth. God takes up residence in this new earth. And this new earth that John describes for us here in Revelation 21, it is this present world renewed. It, he sees a, a renewed cosmos, the, the creation uh, restored, recreated, remade, redeemed. I, I ran out of R words, but you, you, you get the idea. Even the the word new that John uses in verse 1, a, a new heaven, new earth, and then verse 5 where God says, Behold, I am making all things new. The, the idea there is new in quality, not new in time. And Phil Reichen points out that God says there in verse 5, I am making all things new, not all new things. To this this present order, the, the creation is destined for, for renewal, not annihilation. Uh, it's going to be transformed, not utterly destroyed. A new creation follows the, the pattern of Christ's resurrection, Christ, the risen Christ, who is the first fruits of the new creation. That, that same physical body that was nailed to a tree, that was laid in the tomb is the same body that was raised and transformed and glorified. Uh, Christ's body was not replaced with something completely foreign. It was the same body resurrected. And so it will be with with our bodies. So it will be with the rest of creation. And and you think of Paul in, in Romans 8 as he talks about the the whole creation, not, not just believers, but, but the entire creation longing for the day when it's liberated from its bondage to corruption and made new and, and whole again. And, and one author described that picture as, as creation almost standing on tiptoe, anticipating that day when all things are made new. Everything that's been twisted and and deformed by the curse will be healed. And all that's defiled and corrupted will be purged and cleansed from this earth and and creation. And all the children of God will be set free and made glorious. You see, the the redeeming work of Christ is, is so much bigger than we often Realize it's cosmic in scope. It's not just about saving individual souls. Um, praise God! It is intensely personal, but it, but it's so much bigger. It's about all things made new. It's about the world that God created being set right. The the same Christ who spoke creation into existence isn't going to relegate it to utter destruction. According to Colossians 1, Christ came to redeem all things in heaven and on earth. And in case you're wondering, that's not some kind of statement about universalism, but the, instead the, the cosmic scope of Christ's work. You see, this world matters to God. And what He did for Christ in raising Him from the dead, He's going to do for the entire cosmos. You know, often we wonder, what will this new world be like. I think John gives us some glimpses here, but but you'll notice he does it mostly in negative terms. It, it's so amazing that he can really only communicate to us what what it won't be. And you notice there in verse one, he says the sea was no more. Now, as a former surfer, that doesn't sound all that great to me. Um, but remember, this is apocalyptic literature. It, it's symbol laden. Uh, literature in the sea in Revelation and really throughout the entire Bible, it's this picture, the kind of the supreme picture of evil and chaos. It, it's a source of danger. It it poses a threat to human existence, and it, it's this dark, mysterious abyss that's full of strange creatures. And, and if we were to go back and look in in Revelation 13, the beast comes up out of the sea, and so. John's not saying people won't swim in the new earth. He's, he's saying in the new world, there's no longer any danger, no threat from Satan. Evil is no more. And then in verse 4, we get this beautiful picture, the, the tenderness of our God wiping away every tear from his children's eyes. And, and John shows us here that in the new creation, there's no suffering. In the new creation, none of, there are none of the things that today in this present age, maybe even the things that this week um, are causing pain, they're all gone. No more. Uh, the things that cause us grief and sorrow and heartache, they're, they've been done away with. And you just think about what this means uh, for a moment. No more death ever again. No more saying goodbye to a loved one or a friend Uh, the, The Bible proclaims the death of death and the death of Christ and the grave overcome by the resurrection life of Christ. No more chronic pain. No more heart disease. No more breast cancer. No more stillbirths. No more children with disabilities. No more uh, car accidents. No more Alzheimer's. No more grief over wayward children or unfaithful spouses or fractured friendships. You know, no more discouragement. No more disappointment. No more depression or panic attacks or trauma. Um, no more skin knees or broken bones. No more loneliness. Or fear, John says, the former things, the, the things that characterize this sin-cursed world have passed away. All evil and sin will be purged from the new earth. And that includes evil people. And there's this very sobering warning in verse 8 that just stands out from the, the rest of the passage. The wicked... John says, are excluded from the joy of, of the new creation. They're consigned to eternal judgment. And as you look at the list of vices that that John articulates there, he's not saying that anyone who's ever committed any of these sins will be excluded. If that were the case, I think all would be excluded. What What John's talking about here is those whose lives are characterized by these things, those who have refused to repent of their sinful ways and have refused to trust in Christ. And perhaps some of you here have never repented of your sins. You've never turned in faith to Jesus Christ. And I want you to take this warning here as God's gift to you. You see, God wants you to see here where... Your, your rebellion against Him leads. It doesn't lead to happiness. It doesn't lead to freedom. It leads to destruction. And He wants you to turn to Him. He wants you to, to come to Him and receive life. He says to the thirsty, I will give from the spring of the water of life without payment. And so God says, turn. Come and I, I will give you life. Come to Him through faith in Jesus Christ and He will forgive your sins. He will give you life and the hope Of a new world. Now, as we think, try to even imagine in the smallest way what this new world will be like, I think it can almost seem too good to be true to us at times. I mean, it does, doesn't it? It just sounds, in a sense, like pie in the sky or a pie on the earth. I don't don't know which. But but this world brimming with with life eternal in the presence of God and a world of undiminished happiness and joy can can sound so foreign. It's almost difficult to imagine. And I I think that's why God says in verse five these words, these words about the promised new world. They're trustworthy and true. He, He puts His own stamp. On them. And he says in verse 6, it is done. We hear his assurance. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the, the first and last letters of the Greek alpha, alphabet, the beginning and the end. In other words, he's the sovereign Lord of history. This is the, the, uh, he's taking history in this direction. This is where it's all going. And he most certainly will bring this to pass. It, he will take up his residence in the new earth among his redeemed people. And he says here he will satisfy our deepest needs with his own life-giving presence. So what is this, this promised new world that, that Scripture holds out to us? It's a new creation. You know, it's this world, but better. Uh, this world restored and, and cleansed and made right. You know, On the one hand, that world is unimaginable. Um, a, a world without sin and death. And yet, on the other hand, I think this present life, life as we know it, gives us at times little glimpses of, of what that world will be, and that makes sense, right? Because it's uh, because the new earth is the old earth renewed and recreated. The future's not entirely foreign to us. And imagine somehow you're, you're able to show someone from the early 1800s a Tesla Model S. You know, all they've ever known are wagons pulled by horses, and somehow you show them this electric car. You know what is that? In a sense, it's unfamiliar, entirely unfamiliar to them. And yet, on the other hand, it's really not right. Like a wagon, it's it's a vehicle, four wheels, uh, moved. It moves people from point A to point B. And so, in a sense, it's completely new, and yet it's also familiar. And so it will be in the new creation. I I don't think it's speculation to say that we will enjoy the the beauty of the created world, the beauty of of mountains and rivers and forests, that that we'll experience the joy and satisfaction of of human relationships without all of the sin, without all of the conflict, Um, deep belly laughs, the, the sound of music, the smell and taste of food. And the list could really go on and on. You know, the the prospect of some disembodied future up in the clouds, it really sounds boring, doesn't it? It ought to sound boring to us. We were created for embodied life. And and that picture that's so common, um, it doesn't help us hope for God's future very well. You know, Randy Alcorn, who's written a lot about this, he says trying to develop an appetite for an eternity of disembodied existence is like trying to develop an appetite for gravel. You know, you, you can keep trying, it's never gonna work. God, God's word holds out to us a better hope. Life as it was meant to be in a new creation. And so what is this promised new world? Number one, it's a new creation, but that's not all. We see, secondly, that it's also a new city. And so John introduces us to this picture of a city in verse 2. He says, I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God. And then he comes back to this picture beginning in verse 9. And really through the end of chapter 21, he, he continues to paint the portrait of what this city is. And you'll notice he, he says something very puzzling about this city. He says, this city is a bride, verse 2. He sees the, the new Jerusalem coming down out of heaven from God, and he describes it as a bride adorned for her husband. She's decked out in wedding garments. And then verse 10, the city is the wife of the Lamb. Well, which is it? Is he, is he describing to us a person or a place? Well, in a sense, it's, it's both. Remember, Revelation, full of symbols. And I, and I know that's hard for us, but that's this style of, of writing. And, and Revelation often mixes metaphors. And John is showing us here the, the people of God, the, the church, the bride of Christ, pictured as a majestic city filling the new earth. And as he begins to describe the city, he talks about some of its features. He, he looks at the wall, he looks at its gates and its foundations, and, and notice as he does this the emphasis on the number 12. In verse 12, he says, the city has 12 gates. There are 12 angels, one posted at each of the 12 gates. The names of Israel's 12 tribes are inscribed on the 12 Gates. Uh, verse 14, the, the wall of the city has 12 foundations with, and this should be no surprise, with the names of the 12 apostles written on them. Uh, it's a picture here. The city represents the, the people, uh, the one people of God. You have believers from Old Testament times, New Testament times, bound together in Christ as one complete, unified. People. That, that's what John is showing us here. And it's a it's a cosmopolitan city, if you think about it, as John paints this picture of, of all the people of God together here in the new earth. You've got you've got ancient Jewish believers like Abraham and Sarah, but also believers from every corner of the globe. And later in the chapter, John describes the, the nations taking up residence here in this city. And and earlier in the book he, d- he describes a, a multitude of believers from every tribe and tongue and people and nation gathered together. And, and here they are, John is saying. It's a, it's a multiracial, racial multi-ethnic, a multi-generational city. Or as Paul would say in, in Ephesians 2, the one new humanity in Christ. If you've ever spent time in a city like a big city like New York or, or London, you get a very faint glimpse of, of this future. You know, the, the diversity of people who make up New York City, who, who make New York City their home is, is really astounding. You've got people from, from all over the world living together in this, in this city and all kinds of cultures and traditions and, and musical styles and foods are represented and now we know in our world, that's usually a recipe for conflict when you have such differences. But, but here in, in the new world, there's going to be this beautiful unity in the midst of all this diversity. And Not only is it a cosmopolitan city, John tells us in verse 16, it's a, it's a huge city. It's really massive. As He, he gives these dimensions there. It's, it's 12,000 stadia in length. Uh, roughly 1,380 miles. And so you think about that. That's basically from here to Dallas, Texas. And and he tells us the width and height are the same. And and so it would be this city, in literal terms, would stretch basically from our southern border with, or our border with Mexico north, almost all the way up to Canada. And, And just to put the city's height in perspective, the the International Space Station, it, it rotates around the Earth at an altitude of about 220 miles. And so the New Jerusalem, 1,380 miles high, is just soaring far beyond the space station. Now, I, I don't think this is meant to be a literal description of the city's dimensions. Remember, the city is the people of God. And, and we're getting a picture here of God's people, God's redeemed humanity filling the new earth. And we could say that the borders of this city stretch to the ends of the cosmos. And there's, other, there's another feature of this city that John draws our attention to. It's not only cosmopolitan, it's not only massive, it's a temple. It's a temple city. Uh, look again at, at verse 16. He says, The city lies four square it's a perfect square, but, but more precisely, it's a cube. Its length and width and, and height are equal. And, and I'm not just drawing your attention here to minutia that has no meaning. You think, where else have we seen a cubic structure in Scripture? And, and the only place, the only place is in Solomon's temple, the Holy of Holies, uh, we, we read about in 1 Kings 6. And then the, the city's foundations, as John describes, them, made of all these precious stones and and jewels resembling the the 12 stones found in the high priest's breastpiece. You remember we we looked at that some weeks back. Uh, The city's streets are made of pure gold, just like the Holy of Holies was overlaid with gold. And then you notice what John says in verse 22. This is really key. He says, And I saw no temple in this city, for its temple is the Lord God, the Almighty, and the Lamb. This is an amazing statement to hear in Scripture. No temple in this new Jerusalem. All throughout the Old Testament, uh, what is at the center of the city of Jerusalem? A a temple. A a place where where God dwelt among His people in in the most holy place, the Holy of Holies. It it occupied the the center of, of Israel's religious life. But here, John says in this new earth, there's no building. No one building serving as a temple in the New Jerusalem. And and the reason, he tells us, is the city is filled with God's presence. Uh, Every nook, every cranny of this city is temple. God dwells among his people. And and he describes it, the, the, the light of God's presence envelops the city. And he says there's no need for a sun." Now, he doesn't say there is no sun. He says there's no need for it. It's unnecessary because the glory of God fills this city. It's a city of light, the light of God's presence. And this is your future if you are in Christ, taking up residence in a world flooded with God's visible presence, a world where, John tells us here, there's no darkness, no night, uh, meaning the absence of any threat, the absence of all danger. A city, he describes, whose gates are never shut. You know, in, in the ancient world, the gates of the city were closed and locked at night to keep out enemies. But there's no enemies here. The gates are always open. God's people are safe and secure. And God is there. That, that is John's, uh, what seems to astound John, never again will any of us wonder, where is God? Why does he seem so far away? All is temple, John says. God is with us. Our future is perfect community and perfect communion. That's what the picture of this majestic, glorious city is is saying to us. You know, We are headed for a community, an experience of community like we've never known in this life. You know, community unspoiled by sin, untainted by our own selfish desires and our own uh, blundering incompetence. You know, if, you, if you've ever been, if you've been a part of the church, uh, not just this church, but, but the, the church for any length of time, you know, it can be difficult to experience true community, right? I, we all bring baggage to the table. You know we're, we're fearful what people will think of us if we let them in on, on who we really are, and, and we pretend and we posture, we judge, we, we wound people with our words, with, with careless words, with indifference. You know, all too often we get caught up in, in petty conflict. But Revelation 21 tells us there's a day coming when we will know true fellowship, we will know true friendship in Christ, a day when there's perfect love, perfect trust shared between the billions, the, the innumerable multitude of the redeemed who call the New Jerusalem home. And not only community, but, but also perfect communion you know what will it be like to perfectly know and love god with every fiber of your being you know what will it be like to to dwell in god's immediate presence with, without um any any sin <laughs> any corruption without any of the the filth within us that that disrupts our enjoyment of his love and grace but but rather just the perfect freedom to bask in the light of his love and glory. And, and I really can't imagine, I really don't have words for you what, what being so perfectly at home in the presence of the triune God will be like forever and ever, world without end. But, but I'm looking forward to it. <laughs> I'm looking forward to it. So, what is the new world that God has promised? It's a new creation, it's a new city. And third, it's also a new garden, a new garden. And here in the final chapters of the Bible, the the story really, in a sense, comes full circle. You you think back to the opening chapters of the Bible, Genesis. uh, The Bible opens with an act of creation. God creates a a world of, of beauty and wonder. He he makes a garden of delights and puts a a man and a woman in it and tells them to enjoy it. He he communes with him there. And then sadly, you know the story, because of Adam's sin, the the couple is expelled from the garden, exiled from God's life-giving presence. And, And really, ever since that time, each one of us is trying to get back to Eden. We're trying to get back to that place of of life as it was meant to be and and one writer says uh, as as sons and daughters of Adam and Eve we have eden in our blood it's just kind of ingrained in our dna as as god's creatures it's a place we long for even even without recognizing what that longing is you know and we go we go through all kinds of motions to try to find eden again you know relationships or or success, um, being respected or loved or, or desired—you um, know—checking items off our bucket list, and and yet you know this Eden always remains elusive, doesn't it? You know, deep down we have this sense that that this life is not the way it was meant to be. And then here at the beginning of chapter 22 in, in Revelation, John shows us. Paradise regained. He gives us a picture of a new Eden, like the old Eden, but better. The New Jerusalem is not just a, a temple city, it's a garden city. And you know, some of you, I'm sure, don't like cities. And the, and the idea of spending eternity in an urban context is difficult to swallow. Well, well, you get the best of urban life and the best of garden life here in the New Jerusalem. Notice how John describes this in, in, in the beginning of chapter 22. There's a river there. The river of the water of life flowing right down through the middle of the street in the middle of the city, just like in Genesis 2. There's a river flowing out of Eden to water the garden. Uh, there's The tree of life is there. And as John describes this, the, the tree of life on either side of the river, is, it's almost like there's a forest of, of trees growing on both sides of the river. And he says it produces 12 different kinds of fruit. And it produces fruit every month of the year. It's this picture of abundance. You have waters flowing from the throne of God, bearing His life. And then these these trees whose roots draw up that life into themselves and nourish the new creation. And then unlike the first Eden, there's no angels barring access to this tree. You remember back in Genesis that God put the cherubim there to guard the entrance to Eden, so Adam and Eve would not eat. Adam and Eve would not eat from the tree of life and And we read here verse two, The leaves of the tree are for the healing of the nations. It's accessible to everyone, and God puts the tree there for for the nourishment of his world. We read in verse three that the curse has been reversed. Uh, the way the ESV puts it, no longer will there be anything accursed. That that judgment that, that's uttered so early in the biblical story that is that has been the really in a sense the defining mark of our existence here in this world. Gone. Forever. And God is there. We read in verse 4, God and the Lamb, the Lord Jesus Christ are there. There's a throne. God's kingdom that we pray, let your kingdom come. God's kingdom has come in, in all of its fullness. And, and the picture John paints is, is um, one of, of life. It, it's a flourishing Um, Shalom for God's people and God's world. You see, God did not scrap His plan for humanity after the fall. What was lost in Adam has been regained in Christ. And even more than regained, we're seeing here the the consummation of God's purposes here in Christ. This, This second garden will be even better than the first. You know, there's so much we could explore here about what it means to be uh, reigning with Christ, to be restored to that, that original purpose for humanity, God's co rulers. And yet, the, the greatest good of this new city, new creation, new garden, the greatest good is what John talks about in verse 4 there. He says, They, the redeemed, you and I, will see God's face. We will see God. The greatest delight of the new creation, I'm sure the mountains and the rivers and the and the food and the beauty and the colors and the people and all that is going to be wonderful. But the, the greatest delight of the new creation is coming face to face with God Himself. This is what's called in theology the beatific vision, the, the blessed sight the the highest good that God could ever give one of his human creatures we will see him and and the light of his life and his presence it's going to fill our vision forever and ever you know in a sense this is going to be the the ultimate fulfillment of that benediction that that Craig and I often pronounce at the end of the service from number 6 that the Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. The Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you peace. That's what John is describing here. And friends, this face to face union and communion with God will always be in the face of his Son, Jesus Christ. The, the radiance. Of God's glory, the the embodiment of of God's love and and faithfulness. Our our Savior is is right there at the center of this new creation, at the center of of this new city, of this new garden. He's he's the first fruits of the new creation. The the one we read about in Colossians, through whom all things were created, by whom all things were redeemed and for whom it all exists, he, He's right there. And you know, sometimes people wonder, because they have that view of eternity as this immaterial place, as a disembodied spirit, and they wonder, that is eternity going to be boring? There's really not a chance. <laughs> we will never tire of beholding the face of the Savior who loved us, <laughs> the Savior who laid down His life for us the Savior who was raised in great power and glory and has made all things new. I want to close with, with something that, that C.S. Lewis wrote. It's from the final chapter of the final book in the Chronicles of Narnia series, The the Last Battle. And it's from a chapter titled, Farewell to the Shadowland. And Lewis, as he often did, just captured so well what... what John is telling us here in Revelation 21 and 22. This is how it ends. The things that began to happen after that were so great and beautiful that I cannot write them. And for us, this is the end of all the stories. And we can most truly say that they all lived happily ever after. But for them, it was only the beginning of the real story. All their life in this world and all their adventures in Narnia had only been the cover and the title page. Now at last they were beginning chapter 1 of the great story which no one on earth has read which goes on forever in which every chapter is better than the one before. Friends, this is the promised new world that God has promised to us in Christ. Let's pray. Our God and Father, In a sense, words fail us as we think about this glorious future that You have promised. This glorious new world that You have guaranteed by raising Christ from the dead. We pray that You would help us to be people whose hope is fixed on Christ, the risen Christ, whose hope is for that better country, that better city, the new Jerusalem coming down out of heaven to earth. We pray, Father, that you would give us little, little foretaste in, in our fellowship together, in the, in the many blessings that you give us in this life, in our, in our enjoyment of Christ's grace, that you would stir up our hope for that world to come. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.